Excellent, good. Welcome everyone. Um, as I mentioned last week, we're gonna spend this week and next week uh, leading up to Pesach, which is a week from uh, Friday night, talking about and exploring text about Passover rather than focusing on the weekly cycle of Torah portions the next couple of weeks. Um, and so that's this week and next week. And then the week after that, during Passover, I will be away. So we will not meet the last, the last, uh, no, on April 21st, but then we'll meet again on the 28th. So that's all good. Um, good. So I, as always, Passover, there's, I, I have way more to explore than we'll ever do in this hour. So, and I'm sure the next hour, but whatever we don't do today, we'll keep going next week. And then the whole point of Passover is, as it says in the Haggadah, kol hamarbeh al yitziat mitzrayim hareze mishubach. Everyone who expands on the story of our liberation, that is worthy of praise. And that is really the point. So Passover is uh, supposed to spur our discussion and our fertile exploration of what it means to be liberated, what liberation means, what it means to confront tyranny on every level of experience. I can't think of a better theme for a holiday. And uh, so amongst all the ideas I have, I'm drawn to share with you the text, because this is a text, we are focused on texts in, in, you know, in this class, the text of the special Haftorah for this Shabbat. So this Shabbat is called Shabbat Hagadol. And it's called Shabbat Hagadol, as far as I can tell, because the special prophetic reading, the special Haftorah for this Shabbat includes the famous phrase, lo, a great and awesome day, yom norav v'gadol, is coming when Elijah the prophet is going to come. So I have a feeling that's the origin of why it's called Shabbat Hagadol, because of that phrase, that famous phrase in the Haftorah. And so I wanted to look at that special Haftorah with you first in class today, and then we'll have time to move on to other things I suspect. So let me introduce it to you. The Haftorah that's chosen for Passover comes from the, comes from, um, the uh, prophetic book called Malachi. It would be translated as Malachi in English. It is the very last book in the section of the prophets in the, in the Bible. So just for orientation, Malachi does not actually seem to be a name, Malachi, even though it becomes a name, because Malachi means my messenger. And uh, the, the book of Malachi, which is only three chapters, um, um, begins... This is, the, God says, here is the word I have sent with my messenger, Malachi. So we, should, we might say that it's an anonymous prophetic text. But 
that's a, just a guess on the side there that it wasn't an actual person named Malachi. Um, and what's interesting is that the rabbis, the, the ancient sages, the, 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 the scribes, the people who were in charge of our sacred texts and organized them, chose to put this text as the summation of the entire body of prophetic works. It's not the end, like it's tacked on alphabetically or anything. It's quite intentional. And so what we're reading on Pesach, which is the festival of our liberation, are the final word, the last word of the prophetic literature. It's considered so um, significant in uh, traditional rabbinic Judaism because the rabbis declare that after Malachi, prophecy ceased in Israel, which is a whole other subject. Uh, but what we can say is the age of prophecy, where there were these individuals known as prophets, Malachi is considered to be the final one. That's not historical, that's not chronological, it's, it's literary with that intention. So I thought, this is pretty significant. Let's look at it and see what the message of it is leading us into Pesach. How does it sum things up? So I'm going to share the screen and we're going to look at it. What, we'd be, what we'll be also um, looking at in synagogue on Saturday. Let me do that. Um, there we go. Hold on a second. Let's see, what, I have to check what verse it starts on. Verse four, that's what I thought. Okay, let me move this. So it starts in the middle of a, a, a sentence, which is not, a uh, middle of a paragraph, which is not unusual. The rabbis were selective in what they chose. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem shall be pleasing to yod as in the days of yore and in the years of old. But first, I will step forward to contend against you, and I will act as a relentless accuser. Accuser also would be translated as prosecutor um, uh, against those who have no fear of me, no reverence of the creator. Those who practice sorcery, who commit adultery, who swear falsely, who cheat laborers of their hire, and who subvert the cause of the widow, orphan, and stranger, says the Lord of hosts. So here is the classic litany and the classic sort of the classic, what's the word I'm looking for? The, um, the central theme of prophetic literature and of the Torah before it. To fear God means to not practice these things. Think of sorcery in this case in its most pejorative sense as, you know, someone trying to uh, uh, 
determine fate or act like a uh, act like they have control over the universe. Um, adultery, of course, swear falsely. These we know from the Ten Commandments, and then this one, Oshke Sachil, Sachil, who cheat laborers of their hire, you could also translate as um, uh, extort the wages of workers. That's what oshek is, extortion. Um, and mate ger, again, I think um, a better translation is who mate ger means who um, uh, Rust the stranger aside um, and have no reverence of God. Um, remember when we talked about Amalek a few weeks ago before Purim? Amalek, who had no fear of God and attacked the weak and the helpless and the stragglers in your rear? That again is the biblical understanding of what evil human behavior consists of. And reverence for God means that you have reverence for all of God's creatures, especially human beings in the Bible. In other words, human society has to manifest fear of God or reverence for God in how they treat every single member of that society. And now, as many, you know, this is a rebuke. This, so the rabbis choose to end the rabbinic literature in classic, the, the prophetic literature in classic prophetic fashion with a rebuke. Not necessarily as we would say, who knows? It doesn't, it, you know, does it, does it work? Does it shake us out of our torpor? I don't know. Or does it just make us defensive? It's tough reading the prophets sometimes but they are speaking truth to power. They are speaking to the leaders of their community, the ones, the, the, the bosses, the powerful, right? That's who they're speaking to, who have the power to exert over other people. So this is truth to power, which is the core of, prophetic, of the prophetic literature. Um, but it's sarcastic. For I am Yudhei I have not changed. And you are the children of Jacob, and you haven't changed either. Now, what's going on here? Why are we calling Bnei Yaakov and not Bnei Yisrael? Because Yaakov, Jacob, his name means crooked. His name means a cheater. It, that's Jacob's name. And we know this because there's going to be a lot of wordplay on Jacob, because this is a piece of, this is a very fine crafted literary document. And so speaking for God, Malachi says, I haven't changed. And for God's sakes, you haven't either. You sons of cheaters. When's it going to change? Children, from the very day your father's of your fathers, you have turned away from my laws and have not observed them. Turn back to me. Shuvu Eli. Vashuva Alechem. And I will turn back to you, says Yodhe Bavne. 
and then you ask, uh, how shall we turn back? Um, and I'm going to use a different translation, but here is where you need to see. You see this word, hayikba, kuf bet ayin? It's an anagram of Yaakov. Akov means crooked, yikba means cheating. So the way Hebrew works, the sound alike anagram of these two verbal roots probably means they're related because uh, that's, that's often the way Hebrew works. Shall a person cheat God? How can a person cheat God? And yet you are cheating me, says God. The word kava, kava, kava. You see, it comes up four times. So it's, a, it's like an oratorical thrust. Um, how have we been defrauding you? I'll tell you how. You haven't been giving your tithes and contributions. Um, you are suffering under a curse for you are cheating me. The whole lot of you. Hagoi kulo, the whole lot of you. Now, says this again, the, the voice speaking for God, bring the full tithe into the storehouse and let there be food in my house. Now, this food is to feed the tithes, feed the priests and the widows, the orphans and the strangers, the landless. So th this is what we're talking about here. And if you do so, I will surely open up the floodgates of the sky for you and pour down blessings upon you. Uh, I like, the, I like um, uh, this translation better today. Uh, Test me in this, says the God of heaven's host. If you give me your tithes, I will open heaven's windows for you and pour down limitless blessing. That's a lovely, lovely translation. Bracha al ad bli dai. Dai is enough. Bli is none, no ending, without end. So a good translation is endless blessings. Um, and I will banish the locusts from you and they will not destroy the yield of your soil. And your vines in the field shall no longer miscarry, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations shall account you happy, for you shall be the most desired of lands, said the Lord of hosts. God continues the rebuke. You have spoken hard words against me. Harsh, says Yudhei And then you ask, but then you ask, what have we said among ourselves against you? So again, you think I'm not listening? Here's what you said. And now we get to a theme that is eternal in, among you, in human affairs and is the central theme. Who do you serve? Do you believe? that there is a moral law in the universe? Do you believe that there is a creative force in the universe that asks something of us in which we must participate? This is the eternal question. Uh, well, says God, you have said, it is useless to serve God. 
What have we gained? By keeping God's charges and walking in awe of the Lord of hosts. Look, we see that the arrogant are happy. They've done evil and endured. They've dared God and they get away from, they get away with it. So uh, I see that in the world, don't you? I mean, Elon Musk went to Berlin yesterday after buying, I'm not saying he's evil incarnate, I'm just saying he went, um, uh, he went to Berlin for something yesterday after buying 9% of Twitter and went on a, a, a crawl of all the sex clubs in Berlin. I just thought that was pretty vivid. <laughs> he has more money than anyone in the world right now. So he can go to go fly around the world and take, uh, you know, tour sex clubs and not even wince, not even like feel sh any, any, it's like, okay, we're watching these guys. They're having a great life. Come on, give me a break. Um, in this vein, says God, those who revere God have been talking to one another and I've heard it and I've noted it. And a scroll of remembrance has been written at his behest concerning those who revere the Lord and his esteem, his name. Okay, so again, ancient language, but um, okay, says the prophet. You think that there's not a higher purpose to serve? You think there isn't a moral law to abide by? That we haven't been created for a purpose beyond our self-satisfaction? This is the ultimate religious question, isn't it? Do you serve the God of Mammon, Mammon, which means money in Hebrew? Or do you serve the God of who created heaven and earth? What are you gonna serve? There's no external evidence in human affairs to say that being righteous and humble is like gonna get us some evident reward. This question has been around forever. And now the tone switches. Well, says God, on the day that I am preparing, uh, those who fear God will be my treasured possession. I will be tender toward them as a man is tender toward a son who ministers to him. And you shall come to see the difference between the righteous and the wicked. Um, now, I think that's uh, a bad translation. Vishavtem, remember that word teshuva? You shall return, turn back and see the difference between the righteous, between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. And here we come to the, the vision. For behold, that day is coming. Kinei hayom, that day is at hand, hayom ba, burning like an oven. And those who were so arrogant and all the doers of evil shall be like straw. The day will come that's going to burn them up, leaving neither root nor branch, says Adonai Tzvaot. But for you who revere my name, Zarcha lachem shemesh tzedakah. 
a son of victory shall rise to bring healing. Okay, how's this other translation say it? A son of righteousness. Now, this is an interesting thing about the word sadak. Tzedek can mean right, as in victorious, or tzedek can mean right, as in just. So it depends how you want to read this line. Is this a victory or is a victory of, of, you know, what kind of victory is this? It has to be a victory of justice. So the translation I would say is, um, but for you who revere my name, a son of righteousness shall rise with healing on its wing. shemesh a son of righteousness, remember refuah shlema, with healing under its wings, knafeha. And you shall go forth and gamble about like um, uh, stall-fed calves. <laughs> and you shall trample the wicked to a pulp. Uh, they shall be ashes, dust beneath your feet. Um, we have trampled all the vineyards where the grapes of wrath are stored, this kind of language we see in the prophetic literature. On that day that I am preparing. And here is the coda. Zichru, remember the teaching of Moshe Avdi, my servant Moses, whom I charged at Choreb with the laws and rules for all Israel. Behold, I am sending to you the prophet Elijah before the coming of that Yom Adonai, the day of Yudhevave Hagadol, that's why the great Vehanora. And here's the final line. And Elijah shall turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to the parents. Lest I come and smite the land with destruction. So it can be translated pen avo as so that when I come or lest I come. Hard to know how to translate that. Depends on the translator. And then it repeats, the, the rabbinic tradition is to repeat the previous line. Lo, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the coming of the awesome and uh, great day of Yudhevav. And it is with that line that the prophet, the prophetic books end. Okay, so everybody, you don't have to like this, um, uh, but I wanted to share it with you and at least give an effort to um, putting into an idiom where we might be able to relate to what the prophetic voice of Israel is, even if it's a harsh one at times, and uh, it certainly is. Uh, and I wonder, so the question is, why did they choose this passage to be read on the Shabbat before Passover? 
And also, I'd love to hear anything you want to write or say about your reactions to hearing it. That's what I wanted to start with. So if anyone has anything to share, I'd love, I'd love to hear it or read it. Susan? Well, it seems to make a lot of sense because uh, Passover is all about uh, the, the Jews being freed from slavery, from these oppressive people that were really doing harm to them. And so I think the message that those who harm other people are going to be punished by God. They're not gonna just get away with it, even though it may seem that way, like, like Putin. I mm -hmm. mean, just to give an example. No, he is um, an example du jour, for sure. And, and, you know, it looks like, yes, he's gotten away with it, but what the, what the text of the Torah is saying is ultimately he won't, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. And I think that that's an important message to be reminded and that treating, that we're supposed to treat other people the way we want to be, the way we want to be treated ourselves. Thank you so much. Thank you. Roberta? Yeah, oh, thank you. That's so beautiful, Susan. And I, I, um, I'm going to Boise, Idaho to spend Seder with my kids and my grandson. And usually when we welcome Elijah, and I, I learned a whole ritual in Svat where at midnight you go out to, to look for Elijah. And so we, we don't actually do it at midnight, but it, you know we sort of have brought that into our family of like really searching and what what Malachi, Malachi just said, like, I really want to say to my kids that, that the rabbinic interpretation of this is to turn the hearts of the children to the parents and the parents of the children. And, you know, here we are, Passover, it's like the quintessential family holiday where we're with our families. And uh, I'm just already thinking, you know, what kind of a questions can we ask uh you know what what would you need from me so that you know my heart is turned to you or or so that i could do a better job of turning my heart to you and uh, you know it, it's really an invitation to um something new for me to to bring into the seder so thank you wow thank you so much you're so welcome um, I'll recognize you in a second, Marcus. I just wanted to respond to that. Um, isn't that a beautiful phrase? Turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the children to the parents. And we know that the way Passover is expressed first in the Torah, it says four times in different places in the Torah, when you're enacting the ritual of Passover, when your child asks you, what is the meaning of this? You shall tell them. So the Torah says over and over again, it says four times. That's where the four children part of the Haggadah comes from. The, the rabbis said, well, it says it four times. It can't be accidental in the rabbinic approach to Torah. As you know, it's not random four times. There must be a, a we need to search for a, 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 an explanation for that. Well, there must be four different kinds of learners, four different kinds of children. And we need to know how to respond to the person before us. Any teacher 
any experienced person with children and knows that you have to know this person so you know how to talk to them that in a way that will keep you connected. And so that's actually where the four, children, the four sons, which we call the four children, comes from in the Torah. And the rabbis jump all over that and make the entire Passover Seder about eliciting questions from the young ones and discussing with them. So yes, perhaps they chose this Haftorah because there's nothing more important about Passover than um, transmitting it's a meaning to the next generation. And the only way to do that is if we are turning our hearts, hey, shiv lev avot, turning our hearts to one another. It's beautiful to think about, isn't it? And of course, it's Elijah. So we know the place of Elijah in the Passover uh, uh, Seder. Uh, he's, the, he's the messenger of redemption. And this is, how, and this is his mention. You wanna, this is his message. You want to avoid the awesome, horrible destruction. Parents and children have to turn their hearts towards each other. It's quite beautiful. Uh, Marcus, I'm also going to recognize, read what Naomi McCann said, which is quite beautiful. Naomi said, that is why I feel Baruch Dayan Ha'emet is reassuring. Okay. If you don't know this, the Jewish tradition is that when you first hear of a death, oh, so-and-so died, you say your first thing that your um, hope that you want to say in Jewish tradition is Baruch Dayan Ha'emet, blessed is the true judge. And Naomi McCann says, that is why I feel Baruch Dayan Ha'emet is reassuring. It seemed like Hitler got away with it, but blessed is the true judge. Maybe there is a reconciling beyond my knowledge. That's really, that's profound. Thank you, Naomi. Marcus? Hi. Um, I'm really interested in why it's Eliyahu, why it's Elijah. Mm -hmm. um, I think that he symbolizes reconciliation profoundly because, well, first of all, there are two different names of God embedded in his, his own name, as if perhaps to say this aspect of the divine and this other aspect, which seemed to contradict, actually really don't. Now, in his own life, he actually, contrary to what most of us are raised to think, uh, if you look into it more, he was incredibly harsh. And then he had a transformation himself. So within Elijah himself is the representation of reconciliation in his own life and he was really angry and upset about the old paradigm not working. Um, that scene, well, anyway, I won't go into that. But the point is he transformed. And so he sort of, one could even argue that the very saying, um, I will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the parents, uh, the children to the parents is um, what happened within Eliyahu, because in a way he was the father saying, you know, with a lot of rage and violence in the name of justice. And then he became the softer parent or he became the child who gets held by, something like this. 
Mm -hmm. um, that is so rich. I want to unpack it a bit for uh, um, uh, for people who who uh, for for people who might not understand all of it. So thank you, Marcus. Let me. Here's what I want to say. So first of all, Eliyahu means Yah is my God, but Eli El Elohim and Yah Yudhevafe Elohim and Adonai are in the Jewish tradition, two names of God that represent different attributes. Elohim is judgment. yod is compassion. And one of the beautiful things about, you know, there's no way that God is one or the other, right? Because life isn't one or the other. We need judgment and we need compassion, right? There need to be consequences and there needs to be compassion for behavior and forgiveness, all of it. So the, um, uh, so I'd never, so why I'm happy that Marcus shared that is I never thought about Eliyahu being, having both of those names in, in his own being. So I'm really grateful for that. And what you need to know about Eliyahu, as Marcus was describing, in the stories about Elijah in the uh, uh, book of uh, Kings, um, he is a he is a harsh guy. He is really intense and he judgmental, right? Again, and then Elijah. The reason Elijah lives on in Jewish lore is because he doesn't die a bodily death in the Torah. He goes with Elisha down to the Jordan, and a fiery chariot descends, and Elisha observes Elijah being taken up bodily. To heaven. And so because Elijah doesn't die, he, Elijah becomes in Jewish lore to this day of an, a, an exceptional being who journeys between heavenly realm and the earthly realm as bringing messages and, you know, back and forth being a. So that's where the Elijah's myths come from is his ascension in a fiery chariot. And what Marcus was suggesting is that maybe the earthly Elijah underwent a transformation in, in his ascension that brings him to the awareness that his, the way he lived and preached in ancient Israel needs to be modified and moderated by the compassionate voice of the second part of his name. So that's just beautiful, Marcus. Thank you. And that brings Elijah even more richly into our Seder, into our story. It's, it's just beautiful. Uh, Rabbi Ellen, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Going back to um, the reconciliation between, between parents and children, um, in our Siddur, the prophetic vision of the restoration of King David is replaced by this vision in the blessing after reading Haftorah. And when I explain that to my uh, for students, I always um, say that this means that the first thing that happens when in Messianic times, whenever that will be, is that parents and children reconcile. And, and even the 12 year olds know, have heard stories, have seen uh, disruption between parents and children and recognize that this most intimate way of 
uh, getting back together into communication, into harmony, is uh, something to be hoped for and desired in the future. Mm. Thank you. That's beautiful. Yes. Elijah appears in the blessings after the Haftorah. And uh, um, actually, the Reconstructionist version um, shifted the language from a, from a more of a, a darker vision to this line that the, the hearts of the children will be reconciled with the parents and the parents with the children. But I won't, I won't explore that in depth with you. That's a beautiful point, Rabbi Ellen. Thank you. Thank you. So those are the, um, anyone else at this moment? Go ahead, Marcus. Thanks. Uh, Eliyahu, Elijah also returns in his regular life in the story to Mount Horeb, which is supposed to be Sinai, right? That's and right. so I was actually referring to his softening there where he gets radically humbled. Um, oh, oh, good. Let me tell that story too. And before you do, can I just say one quick other thing? Absolutely. Um, thank you. Uh, in a seemingly unrelated thing, but we're Jews, we know better than everything's um, Zelensky, in his secularly prophetic television show, which I watched three years ago. The one, does everybody know that Zelensky was a, uh, oh, so Zelensky rose to fame in Ukraine because of his TV show, where he's a regular guy who gets elected president. And then he became the president. So um, in that story, he's, he's a humble guy trying to fight corruption and he's constantly talking about Putin and all the oligarchs trying to take power away. And it looks hopeless. And one day he's lying in bed next to his son, They're, they read together. And his son says something like, are, um, what are we gonna do? Is it hopeless? Do you have any superpowers, Papa? And Zelensky in the story in the, from, nine, from 2016, he says to his son, yes, of course I do. What, Papa? And he says, you. And so it reminds us, you know, the children. Anyway. Oh, not anyway. That's so relevant. Thank you. In the context of, in the light of what's happening today. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Can we reflect for a moment on, uh, here's a story that's happening right now. This Jewish comedian and entertainer in Ukraine becomes uh, a, a, a star and well-known all over Ukraine because he plays a president who is a lack, you know, who's just a regular guy and then tries to fight corruption and abuse of power. And then the opportunity arose for him to run for president. And now he's the president. And it's mind boggling, isn't it? We just, I just wish him, wish him well. It's amazing. Thank you. It's art imitating life. And yep. So the other story about Elijah, since we're talking about Elijah and he's going to come to our homes in, a, uh, you know, next week. That's important to remember, and I'm glad that uh, uh, Marcus mentioned this, is that when Elijah is in despair, and one of the most famous, it's, it's Book of Kings chapter 18, uh, in despair that the prophets of Baal are just like, nothing's going to happen to them. This is hopeless. 
he and and King Ahab, the famous Ahab, is trying to kill him for speaking out against, yeah, life imitating art and vice versa. Now we're talking about an ancient story that's also about life. He has spoken out against the corruption of the monarchy and they've called for his head. And so he runs away and he runs away and comes as many of you might remember to the mountain of God, which is Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. So Elijah goes back and um, uh, he also doesn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. It's like he's fed miraculously. It's all a recapitulation of the Moses story. Because in ancient Israel, Elijah was only second to Moses in, in a revered leader and teacher. And, um, and then there's the famous passage that Elijah went out and there was a fire, but God was not in the fire. And there was a roaring thunder and God was not in the thunder. And there was um, lightning and there was earthquake and God was not in the earthquake. And then a still small voice. That was the voice of God. One of the most amazing passages in the Torah. Um, how, how, you know, if at Mount Sinai, God appeared as a, to the children of Israel and was perceived as a lawgiver, the mountain shuddering, the quaking, the terror of encountering God, the judge, then following up on what Marcus was saying, Elijah, who has both those attributes in himself, now experiences God not present in the fire and brimstone, but in the still small voice, which can also be translated called the mamadaka as the fine sound of silence. Um, So Elijah, this is so beautiful. Elijah in his person has, has experienced the full range uh, uh, of that possibility, but perhaps is then transformed by experiencing the inner compassionate voice that speaks in that, that you hear not that you, how do we perceive that sound of silence? You know, it's just beautiful. Uh, Rabbi Ellen said, for so many of us, when we were young, we heard, don't trust anyone over 30. The older generation just doesn't get it. And now our generation has been in power and look at the mess we've made of the world. Now we have to look to the youngest adults and work with them to clean it up. Well said. Yeah, now we're looking at the other side of the coin, aren't we? Thank you. That's beautiful. Wow. Let me use the last few minutes to share a beautiful teaching with you from the uh, Sfat Emmet, my favorite Hasidic teacher. Diane, you're... <laughs> yeah, what are they talking about, Diane? Diane says she doesn't trust anyone under 30. Well, both sides now, I guess we've seen it from both sides. We better, we better be a little wiser than we were when we were under 30. <laughs> so remember, the Svat Emmet is the famous Hasidic teacher, the Rebbe of Ger, 
who taught in Warsaw at the end of the 19th century. And I use his teachings a lot in the beautiful version that uh, Art Green created. Let me share a teaching of his about Passover. Uh, can you see it okay? Okay, good. Because I scanned it and it came out a little crooked. So the Svaremet begins by quoting the Haggadah. The more one tells about the exodus from Egypt, the more praiseworthy. In other words, the message of the Haggadah is that this story has to be our story. And then he explains it, for the exodus from Egypt never ends, as scripture says in Deuteronomy, so that you will remember the day when you went out of Egypt all the days of your life. In other words, not just, it's not then, it's now. In the act of telling about the Exodus, the miracle itself is continually fulfilled and enhanced. Let me repeat that. In the act of telling about the Exodus, what we're doing right now, the miracle itself is continually fulfilled and enhanced. We make it the center of our consciousness. Because since this tale of the Exodus is a section of Torah, it has to go on forever. The Svaremet isn't confused. The Torah is not a dead letter. It's about us. If we make it so. And that is why the rabbis added to the tale, saying that there were really 50 plagues rather than 10 and even more. Now, if any of you have a memory of reading through the whole traditional Seder, there's this mystifying section where one rabbi says there weren't 10 plagues, there were 50 plagues. And another says, no, there were 250 plagues. And they go on and on. And it's like, when I was a kid, I never understood this section. But, um, and we're not going to explore it more now, just in the interest of time. But the Svademet gives it a beautiful spin. That is why the rabbis added to the tale, saying that there were really 50 plagues rather than 10 and even more. Now they felt the 50 could, now they felt the 50 could be revealed while previously they had been hidden within the 10. In other words, I would say what Svaremet is using the Haggadah language for is what are the plagues of our time that are inherent in the plagues we read about in Egypt? This is something for us to constantly explore. What is the result of our pharaonic actions doing to the people in the world and the world itself. That's what telling the tale does. It keeps drawing out further potential. The real point of the story is that on, on, by telling this story, we remember that we can be liberated from the force of evil. The root of that force was back there in Egypt in the actions of Pharaoh. But the specifics of our liberation are worked out every year. Such a beautiful teaching. The Hebrew of that is, yes, the roots of that evil were in Egypt, 
ובפרטות נגמר בכל שנה ושנה. יותר. The specifics of our liberation, the פרטות, get worked out every year. And Art Green said, who's the uh, translator, the root of evil is the enslavement and the degradation of the human spirit. The denial inherent in slavery that each human being is the image of God. That principle is constant and unchanging. We are as committed to it now as we were on the day we left Egypt. But the many ways in which that evil force manifests itself the human community still crying out for liberation from bondage, the subtleties of enslavement even among those who think they are free, the new categories of evil and degradation we had failed to notice for so long. All these need to be discovered and worked out each year. In this sense, our liberation from bondage is truly an eternal process one that continues to grow through the telling and through our deeds. I just think that's a fabulous expression of the essence of what it means to expand upon the story every year. What it means when the Haggadah says, Bechol dor vador, chayav adam lirot et atzmo, kilu hu yatsa mimitzrayim. In every generation, each person must view themselves as personally going from slavery to freedom. That's how the Haggadah, you know, that's how it's constructed. I'm telling you, it's just the most amazing, most important holiday. And it gets, I'm glad we get to eat while we're having all these conversations. Ah, Roberta said, check out the new organization's third act. For those of us in our third acts of our lives, standing beside with, and with the younger social change activists. Thank you, thirdact.org. I will look at that. And Mark It was started by uh, Bill McKibben. Oh, who, Bill McKibben. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, a partner, and um, yeah, it's it's incredible. It's it's already growing. Like the last call featured Representative Barbara Lee and Bette Midler. I mean, activists. It's it's phenomenal. Wonderful. Thank you for letting us know about that. And Marcus says, uh, <laughs> Jonathan voiced both sides now, Joni and Eliyahu, and The Sound of Silence, Paul Simon and Eliyahu. Marcus, you get me. <laughs> I, the American songbook, folk music, it's like, I can't help it. Like, I hear it all in the, all the time in the Torah. I, we're all over that. It's really great. Um, um, and we can do one Seder from the place of we are Pharaoh. And that's one of the things I was going to say, which is that this year more than ever, the metaphor of enslavement and tyranny is our actions against the earth and the consequences of them. That our insatiable desire for more has led to us crushing the earth the way Pharaoh crushes the slaves. 
And for me, that metaphor is just everywhere in my mind right now. And I wanna turn your attention also towards Rabbi Arthur Waskow, who has been preaching this for a long time. Um, uh, Rabbi Ellen, will you put his website into the chat too? Um, our hardened hearts, our inability to say Dayenu, we have enough, our abuse of power, our subservience to the greedy lords of oil, oil uh, drilling who keep finding new and ever more insidious ways to ruin the planet with its own body. I, we're gonna talk more about that next week. Diane, I'd love to hear from you. A number of years ago, I rewrote the story from Pharaoh's point of view. I wrote yes, the, I diary, remember. the diary of the Pharaoh because in my life as a landlord, I have to question myself frequently about how I'm treating people. And, uh, you know, for, so for, because it's very easy from the point of view, from our own point of view to think, oh, that's fair. <laughs> you know? uh, anyway, so I wrote that. I remember, I'd love to read it again, Diane. Well, I can send it to you. Please do. Um, uh, yeah, I also have, have been thinking about ruining the planet. We're not ruining the planet. We're just ruining it for us. Well, but we're destroying so many other creatures' ability to survive as well. Okay, I mean, the, true. The, 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 we don't know. We're so unaware. This, the, the story of plastics, which are an oil product, um, destroying the, the, the uh, food chain in the ocean is staggering. Uh, and it goes on and on. Yes, uh, Diane, from my perspective, in the biggest picture, the earth will survive and recover. Yeah. But um, we weren't put here to do what we're doing. That is the conviction that- Right, well, I like, I like to quote Bill Bryson, who said, extinction is a very normal and natural thing. It just happens to suck if you're the one that it's happening to. Uh, that I understand, uh, but-, but uh, you, and we're doing it to other people, right? Uh, other species, yes. And Rob That's said, right. and sadly, as we destroy the earth for greed, there are many slaves forced to work and they suffer for our desires. And all of us are complicit, both as consumers and as producers and as workers. Uh, yes, microplastics, have, we're transforming what life is on the planet right now through our our um, our unthought out actions. <sighs> okay, next week I wanna, we'll continue our conversations about Passover really priming us and me. And that's one of the things that I, I appreciate these conversations for another meaningful and uh, uh, um, powerful holiday. So thank you very much, everybody. <laughs>